0: This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence. It's a Tuesday afternoon in February. A black man named George Ward is sitting in a jail cell in Terre Haute, Indiana, near the Illinois state line. Earlier, someone shot and stabbed a white woman in town. She later died. The authorities think it was Ward. Hounding will soon echo through the jail As men outside use a battering ram on the door, the mob will pull Ward out, tie a noose around his neck and drag him to a drawbridge. They'll tie the opposite end of the rope to the bridge and toss him over the side.
1: Directly across from here where that tree is,
2: he was hung there and right below that tree, he was burned on the banks right down there.
0: That all happened here in Terre Haute more than a hundred years ago. But Ward's family still remembers. They want the rest of their community to remember too.
3: I'm not a public speaker, so I do get nervous. I don't like crowds, so I do get nervous. So if I skip a couple words, forgive me, because I mean well. George Ward was a resident of Terre Haute, Indiana. He was a son, he was a husband, and he was a father. And he was the victim of a brutal lynching, February 26, 1901.
0: On a Saturday afternoon, Ward's great-granddaughter, Jacqueline, showed me the remains of that old bridge and pointed me to the spot where the mob tossed Ward's body onto a bonfire.
1: Am I walking too fast?
0: No, recording?
3: Yeah. Don, huh? Don, am I walking too fast, huh?
2: Is okay that I'm recording you
3: right
2: uh? now? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, we do have a spot over there. Um, that we're going to set and make a memorial over there too. That'll last when the river rises. When it goes down, it'll still be there. Something that'll stay.
0: Jacqueline and her brothers are in town for a ceremony officially memorializing Ward's death for the first time. With help from the NAACP and Equal Justice Initiative, the city is installing a historical marker on the east bank of the Wabash, near the site where the mob broke down the jail door. Photos of the lynching match gruesome press accounts. As the spectacle unfolded, thousands of white Terre Haute residents gathered on the riverfront, on bridges, and on rooftops to watch. The New York Times noted that, quote, Women came to the scene by scores and elbowed their way into the inner circle of spectators, undeterred and apparently unmoved by the horror of the spectacle. It was 1901. A few miles downstream and on the opposite bank, a future American leader named Franklin D. Roosevelt will in 1938 authorized construction of a new federal penitentiary on 1,100 acres of land. And a little more than half a century later, the United States Congress will designate the site as Federal Death Row. From WFIU Public Radio in Indiana, this is Rush to Kill. I'm George Hale. We cover the federal death penalty for WFIU and, like it or not, the history of racial lynchings in America is part of the execution beat. Historians have long documented how the modern death penalty emerged as a supposed solution to the problem of lynchings, racial or otherwise. A method to exact justice behind closed doors, to avoid spectacle. The death penalty is supposed to be a neutral alternative. And yet, at least at the federal level, it depends on who's in charge. Starting in 2020, the Trump administration swiftly executed 12 men and one woman here in Terre Haute, Indiana, where all federal executions take place, far more than any administration in modern history. And curiously, the execution spree initially appeared to spare one typically overrepresented demographic, black men, at first. The feds waited all summer before scheduling the execution of a black person. But once they started, they didn't stop every man selected to die after that summer was black. Now, the question remains, why was the execution spree split along racial lines? In this episode, we try to find out. We'll hear from the first African American targeted by the U.S. government for execution in two decades, and find out why his loved ones threw out the clemency rulebook and took his case directly to the American people. And we'll hear from experts convinced that justice officials considered race when they selected which people to kill and when. Why that might be, and what it says about the federal death penalty's ability to deliver justice and mercy without bias.
4: It's easier to deal with what you know is coming than what you don't know.
0: Meet Christopher Vialva, sentenced to death in 1999 by a federal jury in Texas for his role in an abduction and murder. If the government gets its way, he'll be dead in a week. And it's looking increasingly likely that the government will get its way.
4: I'm trying to participate in everything and anything I can do to help those that are trying to help me, you know, so that I'll have put my best foot forward and whatever happens,
0: happens. Christopher is trying in 2020 to help his lawyers help him. They're working overtime to convince the U.S. Supreme Court to stay his execution. Christopher doesn't dispute his guilt, and none of these last-minute arguments are about that. The crime was a brutal one, and the victims in the case, a couple named Todd and Stacy Bagley, were particularly sympathetic. They sang and prayed from the trunk of their car as Christopher and his co-defendants tried to empty their bank accounts. They expressed forgiveness and shared their faith before being shot and killed. Today, Christopher refers to them as heroes. He says their actions that day influenced his decision to adopt the Messianic faith. He leads services for his growing congregation on federal death row. The attorneys are presenting evidence that Christopher experienced developmental delays that influenced his decision-making abilities at the time, and research that suggests people's brains don't fully develop until their mid-twenties. Christopher was 19 at the time. He knows this is all sort of a Hail Mary. At least, it feels that way. And anyway, he's way more concerned about what this is going to do to his mother. She's supported him for 20 years in prison. They're extremely close, and Christopher knows his death will crush her. If it's going to happen, he doesn't want to drag it out.
4: It's easier to deal with what you know is coming than what you don't know and all that. But they're bringing this shit down to the wire and I can't even fathom, like, just the idea of laying on that gurney with an IV in my arm, with uh, my mom staring down at me and then two minutes before they just say, yeah, we're going to spare his life, we're going to let him up. Like, like, what kind of sick shit is that? Like, if you're going to spare my life, I imagine you would tell me that a lot sooner. Not three days before, not two days before, not a week before, but at least like a couple of weeks. I mean, damn.
0: And his attorney's strategy contains a pretty major design flaw. They expect the U.S. Supreme Court to decide and explain. All year, lower court decisions have been thrown out without explanation. Stays of execution lifted in the middle of the night. It's really not a good time to ask a court stacked with conservatives to give you more time. And then, exactly one week before his execution date,
3: disaster. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died, a scholar and lawyer who became an icon. She died last night at the age of 87 of complications from metastatic cancer of the pancreas.
0: Ginsburg's vote couldn't save the first five people who got executed over the summer.
4: She just died? Wow. I didn't know that. I just, uh, you're telling me now for the first time.
5: She led an amazing
4: life. What else can you say? She was an amazing woman, whether you agreed or not, she was an amazing woman who led an amazing life i actually sad to hear that. I am sad to hear that. Thank you very much.
0: She was already outnumbered, but without her, any chance of relief for Vialva is essentially hopeless. So the Supreme Court is basically out, if it wasn't already. The U.S. Congress is definitely out. Which means the only real chance of stopping Christopher's, or pretty much any execution in the near future, is executive clemency, an appeal to mercy from Donald Trump.
3: The mother of one of the two inmates who was scheduled to be executed Thursday at the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute is pleading with President Trump to spare his life.
0: With six days to go and no signs of positive movement from the courts or Justice Department, Christopher's clemency strategy is aimed at the public.
3: And uh, and Lisa, you go by Lisa Brown, is that right? Correct. And you are Christopher's mom, right? Yes, I am. Okay.
0: His legal team connects my colleague Adam Pinsker with Christopher's mother who hadn't originally planned on talking to media. They're ready to try anything.
3: Um, I, I can't imagine what the last uh, you know, couple months have been like for you. It's got to be difficult.
2: Yes, it um, was unexpected. Um, we really kind of saw a trend in, in uh, those that have gone before him, and so we thought they were going to stay with that trend, and they totally went outside of that when they chose him.
0: The trend white people almost exclusively also people on death row alleged to have killed children white children again almost exclusively
3: I mean if you could talk to President Trump and say please spare my son and what, what would you tell him
2: that, that he's totally transformed I mean that the people that knew him um, like decades ago would go oh my gosh that, you know, where's the guy that, that we grew up with? You know, that he doesn't exist anymore. And uh, it, it's just an absolutely total transformation.
3: Um, is he resigned to his fate, to, to being executed?
2: Well, what he tells me is that um, he said, Mama, if, if the father wants me to stick around and still do his work and bring others to the faith, then I'm, I'm ready to do that. But if it's his will that I go, then
1: I'm going to the arms of the Lord. Of course, that's hard for me to accept because my flesh is selfish and I want him here with me. Course he's Sometimes I feel like he would rather go. It's just, it's hard to, to weigh his, his emotions and his desires. He wants to protect me. And he and I have always been very, very close. We can we have the kind of relationship that we can just about complete each other's sentences. And, you know, we read each other's minds kind of people. That's how, how connected we are. And it's going to be hard to lose that.
0: The interview airs that weekend on PBS stations across Indiana. It's one of the bigger attempts to spare Christopher's life, getting his face and voice into the media. Working outside the legal system is one of the only things they can do at this point. But if the public, if President Trump could meet Christopher now?
1: They would see a bright, intelligent, articulate man of faith. You know, I mean, I don't want to diminish the fact that two people lost their lives
2: that day. uh, But these are six teenagers that you know, had issues of their own and all of them had had rough childhoods and just really made poor choices that day. They did. I don't believe at all that that was their intent that day. I think things got out of control and it just happened.
0: If the execution goes forward, it's five days away. That means saying goodbye to anybody he's able to say goodbye to just in case.
3: Um, George, I have so miss you. It is so good to finally be in contact with you.
0: Yeah, thanks for calling. Uh, how, how's everything with you? Ray John Taylor, or RJ, is Christopher's best friend on death row. He's also a member of the Messianic congregation Christopher was leading until guards moved him to an area of the prison where they house people whose execution dates are set. RJ says the congregation hasn't been the same since they took Christopher away.
3: Before the call, I was laying in bed just trying to get my head together and it's very apparent that we are functioning at a reduced effectiveness. I go to it, I go through the motions mostly just to be somewhat in solidarity, but it's just not the same.
0: Plus, that was their time together.
3: After our little community got together and had service, Chris and I would stay out there for like five hours. Mm -hmm. And that was our, like, one-on-one time. Mm -hmm. Where we would write songs, play guitar, and just have personal conversations. So that was our little space. We had done that for years.
0: RJ is a good person to know if you're a journalist covering federal death row. For someone sentenced to death, he's got unusual access to the place. He's an orderly, widely trusted, and able to move relatively freely while working. He's got his finger on the pulse at all times. R.J. says most people there believe the shift to start executing black people was politically motivated. Or to be more precise, that they deliberately avoided executing black people until Christopher. He says Danny Lee saw it that way too. Lee's the former white supremacist with the swastika tattoo and all. He was the first person the administration chose to execute when the spree began.
3: Part of the consensus here when they chose Danny Lee first, it was like, yeah, Trump trying to make it seem like he's against the white nationalist white supremacist, So even Danny Lee, that was his perspective of it, too. Mm-hmm. He said, had he not had him in his background, he doubted that they would have pushed him as number one. And so, yeah, but that was the general consensus that make you look good, get you a few white first, and then you go out to the black. Yeah. Um, so um, Danny, Danny Lee himself
0: knew that,
3: you're saying? Or thought that? Oh, no, yeah. He talked about that.
0: And this isn't just prison gossip.
3: He was like, eventually they're going to run out of white guys who are who have exhausted their appeals and they're going to start focusing on what well, a Trump administration will focus on the black guys.
5: Kelly, if I could start off um, as the person who speaks for the president, does the president denounce white supremacism and groups that espouse it in all their forms?
6: This president uh, had advocated for the death penalty for a white supremacist, the first federal execution in 17 years. His record on this is unmistakable, and it's shameful that the media refuses to cover it.
0: That's former White House spokesperson Kaylee McEnany. This hits a little different at the federal defender's office in Indianapolis. As their client's execution dates approach, attorneys for people on death row say the line between neutral justice and public spectacle is becoming increasingly blurred. Executions aren't supposed to look like lynchings. That's the whole point.
7: I don't like killing. I don't like it when my clients do it. I don't like it when the government does it. Um, So, you know, when people call and ask for help, uh, I answer the call.
0: Monica Foster is the chief federal defender in the district that includes the Terre Haute prison. She's involved at some level with every potential execution, and attorneys from out of town are working out of her office. I want to know if she's given any thought to the order in which the government seems
7: to want to execute their clients. That initial list that they came forward with was so curated, so, so curated. They went after uh, white people who killed kids, even though white people who killed kids were not, you know, the majority of people on death row, they were not
1: um, the people who had been on death row the longest. Um, They cynically selected
7: those people to avoid discussion of what is really going on in the federal death penalty. And and what is really going on is uh, racially disparate prosecutions, geographically disparate prosecutions. Whether you get the death penalty in the federal system is completely dependent on your race and the race of the people that you are alleged to have killed and the geographic district in which you commit those crimes. There's no doubt about that, um, but that list did not, certainly did not reflect that. And it's obvious why they selected right. these people. They wanted to avoid the, the uh, public conversations about what the federal death penalty is really all about. It's obvious to anybody who works in the, sy- in the system, yeah. um, you know, will uh, Bill Barr ever admit that? I suspect not, right. uh, but I don't need Bill Barr to admit that for me to know what's going on here. We
0: reached out to former Attorney General Bill Barr in a variety of ways and didn't get a response. But here's the prevailing theory it's just optics. All we have to do is think back to what was happening when his Justice Department announced which people they intended to execute. Just weeks before the announcement, a police officer killed George Floyd in Minneapolis. It was caught on camera and sparked outrage. Racial justice protests erupted throughout the country and world. I was covering these no all spring peace. and
7: summer. No justice. Tensions were high.
1: No justice. No peace.
7: Well, and this country would have exploded had they had they had they announced that they were going to kill folks that were racially proportionate to their numbers on death row, this country would have exploded country was already exploding. Uh, It was a very cynical, they very cynically curated that list. There's no doubt in my mind. Independent death
0: penalty experts share some of Foster's suspicions.
6: Let me know if I need to speak up or something.
0: Ngozi Ndulu is an expert on racial justice and the criminal legal system.
6: When the first set of executions were announced, we were in the middle of sustained racial justice protests, and the people that were announced um, were all white. The first four people whose executions were announced were all white.
0: Ngozi is now the deputy director of the Washington-based Death Penalty Information Center. It's a nonprofit that tracks execution trends. She met our reporter, Eva Tesfai, in an empty classroom at Georgetown University.
6: The order in which people were picked to be executed made it really clear that this was not about some type of process where it was like whoever was next in line, whoever had been there the longest or had, you know, some, you know, neutral reason uh, for being executed was being executed.
0: Whatever order the administration chose to execute people, racial disparities remain in the federal system. So it's tempting to wonder why the order should matter or surprise us. But Nguzi says it reflects problems in the federal system that go far beyond racial disparities and sentencing. We already know about those.
6: Right, right. I I think that there was clearly political calculation around who was being chosen. And the idea that you could talk about um, Daniel Lewis Lee and his past um, of, you know, um, being affiliated with white supremacists did felt like it was tailored to uh, the moment of the racial justice protests. And the reason that that matters to me is the question about arbitrariness and the death penalty. One of the reasons in 1972 that the US Supreme Court decided that um, the death penalty was not being applied constitutionally was because of the arbitrary and capricious nature of death sentencing. Uh, And because of that, um, the Supreme Court found uh, that the, the use of the death penalty at the time violated the Eighth Amendment.
0: This isn't limited to one administration. Racial disparities in the application of the death penalty, not just in sentencing, also go way back to the beginning.
6: If you went back to um, the time of slavery, you would see that um, in uh, states uh, slave states that there were different punishments depending upon race um, and that there was harsher punishments were reserved um, for black people and there was more, less opportunity for mercy but another thing that we saw is that there was this connection between the formal legal sanction of death and informal mob violence um, and informal um, executions and by lynching.
0: Back then, executions were in public. They looked a lot like lynchings. And they often were the same in people's minds. In some ways, they still are.
6: When there were death penalty abolition debates in state legislatures, there was a question of, well, if we abol- abolish the death penalty, are we going to end up with more lynchings, which kind of look bad for us, look like we're not very, you know, organized or um, look look kind of lawless? Um, the irony there is that often there was some official, you know, sanction or looking the other way or even participation in lynching that made it uh, more, you know, official than, than uh, local communities would want to admit.
0: The ties between capital punishment and lynchings are even part of landmark U.S. Supreme Court rulings. In both the 1972 decision declaring the application of the death penalty unconstitutional, and again in the 1976 decision reinstating capital punishment, the justices talked about lynchings and how to prevent them.
6: Justice uh, Potter Stewart mentioned the idea that, well, you know, rep- retribution is a, an acceptable goal of um, the criminal legal system. And if there wasn't a, a sufficient outlet in the criminal legal system for retribution, there, you sow the seeds of anarchy, mob violence and lynch law.
0: A report on race and the death penalty that Ngozi authored just before the September executions mapped the areas where lynchings occurred in the late 1800s and early 1900s and compared them to the places America executes Black people today. They're all the same places. Places like Texas, the Deep South, and Terre Haute, Indiana.
6: The question is, you know, if if we're seeing um, executions and the death penalty being used as a political tool, how comfortable are we uh, with a criminal legal system that is supposed to be um, imposing neutral, objective justice?
0: By late September, attorney and activist Ashley Eve is part of Christopher's legal team. She's working to get his story out there and connect journalists to his court-appointed attorneys and calls to and from the prison, she's trying to keep hope alive for him and for herself.
1: Just the su- again, I just I keep getting so much support from people literally all over the world right now. Oh, you were on NPR today too. Oh yeah. Yeah, on the national radio, they had um, like a five-minute segment about you and your case.
4: Oh, so
5: that was the Carrie Johnson thing
1: then. Probably. Yeah. She did. It. She-
5: he did an interview with some lady named Carrie Johnson. In 1999, Christopher Vialva hitched a ride with a married couple visiting West Texas for a church revival meeting. Authorities later found the bodies of Todd and Stacy Bagley in the trunk of their car. Todd Bagley died of a gunshot wound. Stacey Bagley died of smoke inhalation after the car was set on fire. 20 years after he was convicted of that brutal crime, Vialva is scheduled to face lethal injection. Susan Otto is his lawyer.
1: He's black. He committed his crime before his brain was fully developed. He's now 40 years old. He's been on death row for longer than he was alive in the free world.
5: Vialva is not claiming he's innocent. Instead, his case resembles most of those that end in the death house in Indiana. Like Vialva, who was 19 when he killed the Bagleys, one in four of the men on federal death row committed their crimes before they reached the age of 21. And of the 57 people on the row, more than half are people of color.
0: While Vialva's court-appointed attorneys are talking to media and preparing final motions, Ashley sees an opening. Prison officials have started canceling legal calls and refuse to allow a legal visit after she gets caught recording her conversations with Christopher. Christopher is cool with this, but it's against the rules because it could potentially violate attorney-client confidentiality.
1: I think you should. I mean, it's worth a fucking shot, right? Yeah, but, you
4: know, you throw a lot of crap to see what sticks on the wall and what happens is it's just a big mess. And with this, I don't know... And I really
0: have no faith whatsoever in the judicial system. And Ashley isn't trying to hide it. She's posting them on Facebook and Twitter to get Christopher's voice out there. She thinks the denial of legal calls could work in his favor. Someone on death row should have access to their attorneys, and Ashley is technically one of Christopher's. So she tries to convince him to let her seek a stay of execution on those grounds. If they get, say, 30 days, maybe it's enough time to reach Trump. They don't even worry about that. You know, I don't even know if Trump even is going to see the clemency thing because,
4: I mean, he was at rallies today. And, you know, I don't I don't think he's got the least bit of interest in that kind of thing. I think he's more caught up in trying to get reelected. Really, I don't put my faith in man anyway, but it's just.
0: (sighs) (laughs) Christopher is skeptical, but humors her. But with the Supreme Court the way it is, he just can't see how this saves him. At most, it'll buy him a few weeks to make up for the canceled visits. Then what? But
4: it's like, uh, you know, someone that's like terminally ill and, and they've just been fighting and, and trying to find something to, well at least their family is trying to find something that's going to save them. And, and then they just get to that point like, man, I've been doing all this all these different treatments that have been making me sick and I'm just suffering and suffering and suffering. I think I would just rather die than have to try to keep on fighting this disease. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that's just kind of to, to be a quitter, I guess that's what I think is the, the fear is of being a quitter.
8: Yeah, that makes sense.
4: Especially when I got Family that they want me around, you know what I mean?
8: Yeah. Your mom definitely wants you around.
0: Prison staff certainly aren't acting like he has a chance. They, these people came and asked me today, do you need
4: this many boxes for packing out your shit? Like, really?
1: Wow. How many boxes did you tell them you needed?
4: I told him just bring two because I'm not sending out a bunch of stuff. I'm I'm sending my tefillin, my Talit my Kippah my Bible uh a folder with like some scripture notes
1: Yeah, um, yeah
4: and a sweatsuit that my mom wants.
8: What else do you have?
4: I mean I got other clothes and stuff like that and some sneakers and I mean, most of the stuff I've pretty much, you know, 99% of the the crap that anybody would want, I guess, in here, uh, would, I've given away to other inmates, Mm -hmm. you know. But all I got left now is um, some clothing and a pair of sneakers, and I gotta give out my shaving bag. I don't need that.
0: And they eventually reach a point where the conversations are more about what might happen after he's gone, rather than Christopher's dwindling legal options.
1: It definitely there's there was something today, and I'm expecting more. Um, so yeah, it's there's again, it's not over till it's over. But even when it's over, um, it's not. I'm just getting started.
4: Yeah, I know. <sighs> but we'll just have to see what, what happens. So. You know, just always remember that uh, I've seen everything you've done, I appreciate everything you've done,
0: and and uh, no matter what happens, you should do what you did for nothing. With the execution of the first person that week, it's looking increasingly hopeless for Christopher. And for him, the biggest threat is dragging things out for his mom. They also need to have a hard conversation.
2: There was no forensic or physical evidence to link any of the boys, but they were caught at the scene of the crime.
0: One of the things Lisa struggled with for 20 years was wondering if her son was really capable of doing something like this. She knew he was involved, but so were five other people, each offering contradictory accounts.
2: He had always told me that if this resulted in his execution, that he would tell me the whole story before he died. He knew everything was monitored, so there was no way that he could reveal that prior to his death.
0: Christopher agrees to tell his mom everything the night before.
2: He had told me that he would tell me, and he said that he was afraid if he told me before then that it would destroy what remaining love I had for him.
0: The truth was that, yeah, it was him. He shot them both, and he regretted it the second he pulled the trigger, but it was too late.
2: And I, I just, my response was, son, I've always suspected that. I always had that in the back of my mind. And I think I've proven to you that I've loved you f- through this whole process. Mm-hmm. So he, he, you know, acknowledged that he agreed with that. But he said it just crushed him.
0: Christopher needed to hear something from her, too, before deciding to abandon last-minute efforts. He needed to know that she understood he wasn't choosing to abandon her, that he just couldn't take this dance with death any longer. But this isn't the kind of thing you tell your mom when she's already worried sick, so he couldn't do it. His only concern, or at least one of his few concerns, if there were more than one, about accepting his death was that you would might feel like he had given up. You know, I mean,
2: well, I not so much that I had given up, but that... I don't think until our last visit that he realized how the father had prepared me for that. Christopher
0: didn't know it, but the father had help from a friend.
2: I told him that I had received an email from Rajan, And Rajan told me, he said, you know your son wants to die, don't you? And so... I I told him and I, I said, Christopher, it's okay. I'll be okay. Because I knew he was holding on for me. And, um, he started crying and he said, mama, that put me exactly where i need to be for tomorrow because he knew that i had accepted the father's will and that i could let him go
1: and be at peace because i knew he was at peace
3: sometimes it's best hearing something come from someone outside of that party mm-hmm. the making this is i know you know that Your son, trust me, I'm not gonna sit here and try to deceive you about something. This is what it is. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: So it was like one of those moments and I would have wanted somebody to do that for my mom if I was in that situation. Mm I have a kind of bond with someone, I would take the initiative to do what I feel needs to be done in the situation. Right, right. So that's what I do, that's who I am. And um, I'm so grateful.
2: For on to have had the presence of mind to tell me so that I could put Christopher's mind at ease before he died. Yeah. Talk about a friend. Yeah. I
0: mean, it's like, uh, it's like when there's rare moments where your friend knows better than you what you need, you know? Like, yeah. He knew that he needed to hear from you.
8: We're here today because the Federal Bureau of Prisons has a responsibility to to fulfill
0: the order of the United States District Court for the Western District of Texas. An hour and a half ahead of the execution time, it's business as usual at the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute.
8: I would like to welcome you to the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute. It is our goal to ensure that your needs as media representatives are met to the extent possible.
0: In front of me, there's final paperwork to sign, a visitation form. The same thing you'd fill out if you were just visiting a family member. They tell me to write Christopher Vialva in the blank line. I guess under their rules, you're always visiting someone if you're here. Not sure what to write under purpose of visit. I just write witness.
8: The marshal will check with the Department of Justice Command Center. Absent a stay entered by a court, the execution will occur as scheduled. At this point, the lethal chemical will be administered.
0: The rest happens fast. They divide the six of us into two white vans. There's an airport-style security procedure, but it goes fast because we're not allowed to bring anything except for what we're wearing and our IDs.
8: Only designated public information officers are to be approached regarding any matter related to the execution. Matters and reporters should not question other staff members on site. One of our primary concerns is to ensure the privacy of all involved. You can have only paper and a pen with you, which will be provided by BOP staff in the media witness room.
0: We get back in the vans and drive to a tiny brick building far inside the compound. We walk single file through a beeping metal detector and into a tiny carpeted room under bright fluorescent lights. Two windows are obscured by a curtain. I wonder for a moment if Christopher pursued any last-minute challenges and how long we might end up waiting. Then the curtain shoots up without warning.
1: Bless the Lord, my soul It's okay. It's okay. We'll adapt a little.
2: This is the letter written by Christopher that he wanted everyone to listen to, and it says to everyone present, "I don't expect there will be many gathered here today, especially not for me. However, I do want to thank you for coming. It doesn't matter if you came to say goodbye to me." or to support my mother. I'm thankful to you. One thing I learned of life's lessons is to appreciate what you have rather than what you don't have. If you have written me a thousand letters or only just sat and thought about me from time to time, I appreciate it. If you came to visit me once a year or just saw my mother in passing and told her to tell me hello, I appreciate it. If we spoke on the phone every day or you just sent me a card on holidays, I appreciate it. If anyone here feels they could have done more, don't. You did what you could and that is all that matters. So thank you for those mercies and for your attendance today. I assume everyone here knows the circumstances of my demise and some present may believe it was justice. To me, that is neither here nor there. What is important is that you know that the man being buried is not the kid they locked up. At the time of my arrest, I was a lost 19-year-old kid. A year later, I arrived on death row to the shock of the other convicts. 20 years old, and I'm going to recreation with Timothy McVeigh. I was the youngest, or second to the youngest, to come to federal death row. One of the first guys I met saw me, and with a sad face, shook his head and said, damn man, they're letting babies in here. The age thing didn't matter because 12 citizens decided my life was worthless. My heart was sad, but 12 people filled it with anger. I started to hate the world. All I could do is rage against it. Then one night I saw the truth, the Messiah in a dream. I ignored it at first, but over the years I kept remembering the dream. I let the calluses on my heart soften, I gave my burden to the Messiah, and I have not been the same since. I could see the world in a new light. Without Yeshua, I think I would have lost my mind, or even taken my own life. Praise God that He saw fit to save me. I know I am still in the casket, but the results is not the same. Here is my plea to present company. While you are putting me in the ground, recognize your own mortality. One day you will be buried as well. This life is short, but forever is forever. And the kingdom is forever. If you don't already know the Messiah, I implore you to seek him. He does not care what you have done in your life. He has already done the work of paying the price for your wrong. All you have to do is believe it. Yeshua took me as a sad, broken-hearted man And filled my heart with love, peace, and gratitude. So don't be sad over my death, cry tears of joy, and rejoice in my salvation. Hopefully, I pray you call on the Messiah and accept his gift of salvation, and we will see each other again. Peace and love, Christopher.
0: Coming up, what happens when a prosecutor changes her mind and tries to save someone she helped condemn to death? On the next episode of Rush to Kill, Hal Vialva's death and confession to the murders sparks an unprecedented campaign to spare his co defendant. This is Rush to Kill from WFIU Public Radio in Bloomington, Indiana. This episode was produced by Sarah Whitmire, Brock Hammond, and me, George Hale. Additional reporting for this episode by Adam Pinsker in Terre Haute, Kathy Knapp in Indianapolis, Eva Testify in Washington, D.C., and Mitch Legan in Bloomington. Special thanks to Graham Smith and Meg Anderson at and NPR's Investigations Unit. And to the storytellers at NPR Content Development, Lauren Gonzalez, Arjun Hutchins, Adelina Lanchianiz, Skylar Swinson, Eva Tesfaye, and Brad West. Production support from Adelina Lancianese and Skylar Swenson. Thanks also to Jimmy Ramirez and to Denise Valkyrie. More information about the project is available online at wfiu.org slash rush to kill.